0: Here's how long the American lifespan is today. It is 78.7 years. Here's what it was in 1947.3 years. Not quite a double since then, but it's close. And don't we all like that? And if science could now produce yet another double in our lifetimes, would we like that too? Well, some smart people think it's actually doable. Discoveries are being made in laboratories today that hold real promise for curing the thing that kills most of us in the end, which is aging. And is that a dream come true, or is it a nightmare? Does society benefit when, say, smart, creative people get another century of life, or is there something deeply unsettling about the idea of a couple at the age of 120 deciding they're in the prime of life and it's time to start a family? (laughs) Well, there is much to talk about, much to think through, and much to debate, so let's do it. Yes or no to this statement. Lifespans are long enough. That is our debate. We're at the Kaufman Music Center with four superbly qualified debaters who will argue two against two for and against this motion. Lifespans are long enough. As always, our Intelligence Squared U.S. debate will go in three rounds, and then the audience votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Let's welcome the team arguing for the motion. Please, ladies and gentlemen, first welcome Ian Ground. (laughs) Ian Ground, you have just arrived in from England for this debate. Thank you for that. You are a philosopher and a teaching fellow at the School of Arts and Cultures at Newcastle University, where your primary area of research is the 20th century philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. Uh, And we want to know, is there anything that Wittgenstein can teach us now on the subject... Of life and death.
4: I think he said that the way that we human beings can think and feel and and choose is determined by some very general facts of nature. Uh, And one of those facts, I think, is that our lives are finite.
0: Important and deep thought. I'm going to hear more about that. And please tell us uh, who your partner is.
4: Uh, Please welcome Paul Root Wolpe.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Root Wolpe. And uh, Paul, as Ian said, you are also arguing for the motion that lifespans are long enough. You're our professor of bioethics uh, and the director of the Center for Ethics at Emory. You're also a bioethicist at NASA. As a kid, you were a huge science fiction fan, we know. So isn't a small part of you intrigued by this idea of living forever?
3: Yeah, I think a small part of everybody is intrigued by that idea. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good idea for me a good idea for society.
0: Okay, I look ahead again at your argument, and ladies and gentlemen, uh, Paul Root-Wolpe and the team arguing for the motion. And reminding you that motion is, it's four words, lifespans are long enough. We have two debaters arguing against it. First, please welcome Aubrey de Grey. Aubrey, you are a biomedical gerontologist, a leader in this debate globally. You are the chief science officer of SENS Research Foundation, a charity that is dedicated to combating the aging process. You have said uh, that if we could limit disease and repair the damage of aging, that there would be no natural limit to how long we could potentially live. So with that in mind, is there a number that you're personally shooting for?
1: (laughs) No, there is not, neither for myself nor for society in general. I I, I really feel it's rather idiotic to have a, a longevity goal in terms of how old you are when you die, thinking that there's some natural best length of life is about as ageist as you can get, in my view. All right. And tell us who your partner is, please. And my partner is the illustrious Brian Kennedy, who is the head of the Buck Institute and who is a very well-known biomedical biogerontologist, and I'm delighted to have him by my side.
0: And this is Brian
1: Kennedy, and I have nothing to say,
0: because you just did the introduction for him. Uh, But Brian, let me put this question to you, since you've been working on this since you were a doctoral student at MIT, Uh, for, for those of us who do want to live long, should we be hopeful... That the, uh, that the science will be there in our have, lifetimes.
5: You know, I think we've been very helpful. I've been working on this for over two decades, and I think that the field has learned a lot from the research, and we're really ready to start to try interventions in humans to keep people healthy longer.
0: All right, terrific. Thank you. The team arguing against the motion. <laughs> Let's open with round one. Round one are opening statements by each debater in turn. Speaking first for the motion and making his way now to the lectern on the right, Paul Root-Wolpe, the Asa Griggs Candler Professor of Bioethics and Director of the Center for Ethics at Emory University. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Root-Wolpe.
3: We all want to live longer, maybe even forever. But I think the quest for immortality is a kind of narcissistic fantasy. It's about us. It's about me. It's not about what's good for society. It's not about what's good for everybody. It's what I want for myself. First, before we continue, there's one important clarification, and this gets conflated a lot, and if we conflate it, we'll get nowhere. Life expectancy has increased, almost doubled. Lifespan has not. People lived into their 90s and even into their 100s for centuries. Nobody has lived to 130 as far as we know, and that's our lifespan. The goal of anti-aging is not to lengthen days, but to actually conquer death. It's part of a larger scientific technological utopianism that has this kind of idealized view of how technology is going to change the basic nature of the human condition. For millennia, we've tried to solve the problems of poverty, of war, famine, nationalism. We still have all of these problems. We haven't conquered them. Technology hasn't conquered them. But suddenly, if we get to live to be 200 or 300, somehow, things will be better. Things won't be better. As John said, the life expectancy has doubled. Does that mean that now we respect our elders and we have so many more older people that we turn to them for wisdom? No. Almost exactly tracking life expectancy increase has been a fetishization of youth, not to mention the fact that it has been shown over and over again that as people get older, they get more conservative. And that youth come in with new ideas and new innovations. If the World War I generation and World War II generation and perhaps the Civil War generation were still alive, do you really think that we would have civil rights in this country? Gay marriage? that's a generational shift that happens over time we would be obliterating generational shift and inculcating a deep kind of conservatism overpopulation is one possibility over resource utilization disruption of work you know we work for 50 60 70 years and then we're tired we're still going to be tired if we live to be 200 you want to be a longshoreman for 150 years <laughs> i don't think so It's more strain on social services. There's this idea that we're going to be perfectly healthy and live to 200 or 300 and, I don't know, get hit by a bus or something, but I'm just not sure that the lived experience of being human maps with the kind of utopian vision that we hear about this. Prolonged life will also help uh, the older people accrue greater wealth. It will actually contribute to, I think, um, inequality. We already have older people who are retired, Who um, spend their days non productively. I was just talking to someone beforehand about his mother and my mother who live really waiting for the time that that it's over. Their spouses are dead, their attachment to life has um, diminished. That's why Ezekiel Emanuel wrote in the New York Times that he is not going to want to live past age 75 and he will stop all medication. Paul Wolpe, I'm
0: sorry, your time is up. Thank you very much. And our motion is lifespans are long enough, and here to debate against the motion, Aubrey de Grey. He is the Chief Science Officer of SENS Research Foundation. He's also Editor in Chief of the journal Rejuvenation Research. Ladies and gentlemen, Aubrey de Grey.
1: Thank you. So I'm going to start with this question about um, the, the um, alleged conflict, tension between the individual, desire, and societal good. Hands up anyone who wants to get Alzheimer's disease. All right. Hands up anyone who wants anyone else to get Alzheimer's disease. Right. Think about that, right? It's a societal good because we don't like each other to get sick any more than we want to get sick. And I say Alzheimer's disease just because it's an easy thing to point out, but I'm not trying to pull the wool over your eyes here either because from a biology perspective... It is incorrect, though very popular, to think that ageing itself is something completely distinct from the diseases of old age, like Alzheimer's or most cancers and so on. Most people seem to think that there is some chance of curing Alzheimer's disease in the same way that we might cure the common cold um, and not have any effect on ageing itself, whatever the hell that is. This is a mistake. There is no danger whatsoever of extending longevity to any significant extent other than by extending healthy life. In other words, postponing rather than stretching the period at the end of life when we are not well and when we are going downhill. But coming to the societal questions, there is another feature of um, this debate, which Paul indeed touched on, that I want to address. It's extraordinarily seductive for people to look at the question of some big change that might happen as a result of some technological progress and to presume that nothing else changes. So to look at, for example, the world as it might be 100 years from now when we had had ageing under complete medical control for, let's say, 70 years for the sake of argument, and to presume that everyone would still have jobs and people just kind of forget that, hello, we've got artificial intelligence, which is going to be the focus of another debate that's coming up in a few weeks from now, um and uh, the increase of automation, which is going to completely transform what it means to have a career at all. So, I mean, here's the thing. If we are talking about increasing the amount of time that people stay healthy and not increasing the amount of time that people are sick at the end of life, and if we are talking about this happening in a gradual way, which, of course, it will because people only get older at one year per year, um, you know, then we're talking about a situation in which society has the opportunity to look at these questions, to adjust its priorities, whether it's at the level of just like prioritizing more education or um, taxing people differently or whatever, to change its priorities so as to avoid any of the problems that might occur. Even in the worst-case scenario, where some, for some, other, some reason we can't figure out how to you know, distribute work, access to these therapies equally or how to stop dictators from living forever or whatever it might be, supposing this happened, how bad a problem would that be? And how bad a problem do we have today? Let me tell you exactly how bad the problem that we have today actually is. Worldwide, roughly 150,000, 160,000 people die each day. All right? And more than two-thirds of those people die of aging. In the industrialized world, of course, we're talking more like 90% of all deaths. Let's actually do something about it. I'm John Dondan.
0: Round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate continues in just a moment. And a reminder of where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing in support of the motion lifespans are long enough. Ian Ground, a philosopher and teaching fellow in fine art at Newcastle University and secretary of the British Wittgenstein Society. Ladies and gentlemen, Ian Ground.
4: What is an indefinitely long life? Well, it's a life which from the point of view of its owner can be led with no thought as to its ending or decline. Our opponents think we would all rationally choose such a life. Look, we all want to live. They think it follows from that that we want to live always. This is invalid. There are some goods which we might might say we want more of, But they are, in fact, intrinsically finite. I might say, I don't want this movie I'm enjoying to end. But that doesn't mean I want to see movies that never have endings. (laughs) And therefore no middles or beginnings. For then they wouldn't be movies. What we actually want, when we say we always want to live, is more of this life. At least more of the good things about this life in a world in which this kind of life still has meaning and value. And how does our life get meaning and value? Because this human life is one shaped by the facts of growth and development, our experiences and choices, and our place amongst the generations and the human story. Think of a decision like, maybe it's time I settled down and made a commitment to this career, or, or this person, or this place. What makes that a choice in the economy of human motivation are the opportunity costs. Now, these opportunity costs are priced in the currency of our most precious resource, time. You might think, ah, wouldn't it be wonderful if I had an indefinite amount of that precious resource? But spending that precious currency is in reality the price of being a particular person. We become particular people by making those choices. So to say we address the most profound problem of life by abolishing death is like saying we'll solve world poverty by abolishing money. Our opponents are keen to point out that the human condition is biology all the way down. Hey, it's also biology all the way up. For it's not just our bodies that age. It is we who age. It is we who acquire memories and experiences, characters and capacities, natural gifts and natural limits. So I think this indefinitely long life is unrecognisable as a human life, as a particular life, as my life. So believing we have a right to an indefinitely long life amounts to believing we have the right to be other than human. That's why they embrace post humanism or transhumanism. Now sure you can embrace that. You can think that you know being human sucks, especially the dying bit. And it would be better to be a cyborg or a computer program or an elf. The thing is, you can't rationally want to be any of those things. You can want there to be elves or cyborgs or computer programs, but none of those can be you. So if you vote this evening, vote as humans, vote for humans, vote for the motion. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ian Graham. And that motion is, again, lifespans are long enough and here to make his opening statement against the motion. Brian Kennedy, he is the CEO and president of the Buck Institute for Research on Aging. Ladies and gentlemen, Brian Kennedy.
5: Thank you for having me. It's a wonderful debate. And uh, I'm going to try to use my time to get back to a little bit more pragmatism. We've heard a lot of speculation from the three speakers already about what life's going to be like when we live to 150, uh, how society going to change. I don't know what those answers are. I don't think any of us do. And when you ask me the question, should people live longer, my answer is it depends. You know, If I'm 80 years old and I'm having trouble getting out of bed and I'm taking 20 pills a day and I'm in pain all the time and I can't get out of the house, then maybe I don't want to live longer. If I'm 80 years old and I'm healthy and I can go to the golf course, if I can go to work, then I think my answer is going to be I want to be healthy a lot longer. I want to be alive a lot longer. And so I think that the question of lifespan is really not the question. The question is health span. So let's think a little bit more about what health span means. So I would define that as the period of time when you're disease-free, mostly at least, and when you're still highly functional. Lifespan's going up. It's been going up pretty steadily over the last two centuries. But we have a problem, and the problem is healthy life expectancy is not going up at anywhere near the same rate. So the current approach we're taking is to keep you alive longer, but to keep you sick longer, and that's what's failing uh, and if you look at the healthcare system, we're spending 19% of our GDP on healthcare, and what are we doing? We're focusing on treatment and not prevention. We're trying to wait till you get sick and then spend a fortune treating you and trying to make you better. And if you look at the uh, the chronic diseases of aging, we're being very ineffective at that. The two places where we're having effects are diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And one of the major reasons why is we've defined risk factors for these diseases. And so when we define those risks and, and identify that in a person, we start treating it before they have the full-blown disease. We give them drugs that reduce cholesterol, reduce glucose. That's called early-stage prevention of disease, and it's very effective. Well, I've got news Aging is the biggest risk factor for all of these diseases. It's the biggest risk factor for cardiovascular disease. It's far higher than cholesterol, for diabetes, for most forms of cancer, for all the neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative syndromes you're scared of, like Alzheimer's. And so what I'm saying is let's look at this common risk factor and target that. And if we do that, we're going to be effective at preventing multiple chronic diseases simultaneously and keeping you healthy. The good news is we can already do this in animals. We can give a drug to a mouse and it lives 30% longer. It delays disease. It doesn't prevent it. The animals still get sick, but it compresses their morbidity. They're sick for less period of time before they die. If we do that, if we can make health span go up as fast as lifespan, People will continue to be productive, they'll continue to be active, they'll be, have much less health care we'll improve quality of life, and in this first half of the 21st century, we're going to dramatically improve the economic structure of society. You know, we've heard about what's going to happen when we're 150, maybe we're going to be bored. Well, you know, if you ask me, do I want to have cancer at 75, do I want to have Alzheimer's disease at 85, or do I want to be bored at 110, I know which one I'm going to take. So I'm happy to have this debate. Thank you for coming.
0: Thank you, Brian Kennedy. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is lifespans are long enough. Now we move on to round two, and in round two, the debaters address one another directly, and they take questions from me and from you, our live audience here in New York. We have two debaters arguing for the motion, Ian Ground and Paul Root wolpe They are arguing against the value and the moral rectitude of attempts uh, to expand lifespan significantly by focusing on stopping aging. They say it's not a worthy goal. It's narcissistic. They point out that it... uh, disrupts essentially the story of what it is to be a human being and that aging demonstrates nature's wisdom in the evolutionary process of letting older people disappear and a new generation take up the torch. The team arguing against the motion, Brian Kennedy and Aubrey de Grey, um, they defined the expansion of life span. Uh, as health span, They make a very careful distinction that they are not talking about letting sick people live on and on. They are talking about research and efforts to increase health for many, many years to come. And they call this defeat of aging the most important challenge facing humanity. And they also point out in a very interesting argument that there's not much moral difference between deciding to take on aging as a disease you want to fight. If you're already fighting Alzheimer's and cancers, you already have crossed that bridge. So I want to take a question to the team that's arguing for the motion, which means you're arguing that lifespans are long enough. Th- this moral argument that they make that we're already in a world where we have decided that it's a good thing to f- try to cure the diseases that come with old age, cancer and Alzheimer's, heart disease. We all more or less agree to that. So we've already decided by proxy, that we want to fight aging. So there's not much difference. Would um, you want to take that on?
3: I think what what our esteemed opponents have done is turned an argument about whether extending life is worthy value in and of itself to an argument about whether or not we want to be healthy. I am not against working on aging. And if a byproduct of that is extending life because we make people healthier, great. My argument is against The idea that our goal is to live longer lives, not that our goal is to live as healthily as we can until we happen to die. That was not the proposition of this debate. The proposition of this debate was about lifespan itself.
0: And you, Aubrey de Grey, you, you, you do have a position that takes it much further than that. And your opponents have suggested that you want to abolish death. I want to ask you... Is that an accurate perception of your goal?
1: No, it isn't. Uh, Plenty of the things that people have said about what I say are not accurate. But um, I I think that we need to be careful in um, looking closely at what Paul just said about what we're actually debating. Because it's not quite as simple as Paul is making it we are going to live longer if we extend healthy lifespan, and there will be societal consequences. The um, impression that, uh, that the uh, proponents of the motion are giving is that these problems are so cataclysmically large that we should actually avoid them by simply not going there and not solving the problem we have today. And that is what I tried to um, challenge in my remarks. Ian Grant.
4: I th- yeah, I think I understand that, Aubrey. but it's a little bit disingenuous here. The reason why people find your views in particular so interesting is not because it's going to help their, their granddads you know, not have dementia or something. They find it because you seem to be offering to them, and you said, a thousand years of life. Okay, that's the thing they find fascinating and wonderful and turns them on. And it's disingenuous to say that's just a matter of health. And your argument is that people have a fundamental moral right to live indefinitely. I think the majority
5: of people don't, aren't fascinated by the idea of living forever. I don't hear that when I talk to people. What I hear is I'm scared of getting sick. And uh, I, I really think that it, it's, it's a little disingenuous to say we're going to keep people healthy and have them just die on a certain day. If we do that, they're going um, to live longer. I actually want to live longer. I'll admit it. I, I'm not sure about infinity, but I want to live longer. And really, I think aging research is just a, a way of, of trying to target multiple diseases simultaneously. Paul Wolpe.
3: When they take polls of people, older, healthy people are majority against wanting to live to 150 or 200. It's not that people turn 80 and they look in front of them and and see illness and that's why they don't want to um, live these long lives. If you propose healthy living for another 70 years, the majority of elderly people say they wouldn't want it. And to say that at the end there, that we're either gonna stretch it way out or that we're gonna start new phases of life, it's not the lived experience of being human, in well, let my me, view. Let me
0: bring that question to Aubrey. And I, I understand that the two sides are disagreeing a little bit about what the motion is. But Aubrey, you, I would say, are the, the engine of this debate's existence, um, as in, in the philosophy and the ideas that you've been putting forward. Um, and so I would like to take to you some of the points that they've made in terms of life going on indefinitely. They say that it offends the need we have in our lives for the sense of an ending, that death organizes our lives. It tells us when we're in our prime. It tells us when to have kids, as well as biology. It tells us when to retire. It tells us when to start letting go. And that you're toying with that in a dangerous way. It's a very compelling argument. I would like to hear what your response is to it.
1: Well, of course, I don't think it's a compelling argument at all. I think it's complete nonsense. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, what I see is that people's desire for continued life and their value, their quality of life, their enjoyment of life arises not from how long ago they were born, but from their health status, overwhelmingly. That is ultimately the predominant uh, determinant of that. Ian Grant.
4: Well, again, it's about the end of life and the arc, but actually our lives are conditioned in advance by these sorts of considerations. For example, do we make choices based on opportunity costs? Okay? How much time we have? You can't marry everybody. You've got to choose somebody. Okay? You can't live everywhere. Underlying, I think, this kind of fantasy is really the thought, a kind of weird thought, that you want to be everybody,
0: Let me go to Brian Kennedy.
5: You know, I I think that we talk a lot about what old people are. And I I, I think there are a lot of people that want to do new things, train for new jobs. They learn languages, develop uh, new careers. And and I, I actually... Think We talk about them as old people are conservative. That's a good thing. So they they vote conservatively, sure. Uh, but let's look at why they're conservative. Are they conservative because some life experience has taught them that they shouldn't be liberal? Or are they conservative because... The biology of aging is changing, and that's changing their behavior. I think that if you uh, target aging and keep people younger, you're actually going to find people that are a lot more innovative. They're probably not going to be as conservative. They're going to be taking more risk, and they're going to have the wisdom that comes with being older at the same time, and it might be beneficial.
0: So there's a social argument for the benefit of having people live longer, for, uh, not just for them but for society.
3: I think that there's some truth to that. But underlying that comment is a biological determinism that underlies almost all of the arguments of your side. There is a part of our lives that um, transcend biology in the sense of being symbolic and meaningful. We live life in a narrative arc. We have internal biographies, stories we tell ourselves about ourselves of who we are and what our lives are like and where we were born and who we married and, how, and our children. And, and those narrative arcs live somehow outside of biology. They're part of the symbolic meaning of being human. And the idea that we would could drastically change humanity and still have some kind of a meaningful narrative arc seems to me to be deeply problematic. And it's not about being bored at 110. It's about what it means to have a life where you have children still perhaps between 25 and 40 and then living for another 150 years. And it changes the whole nature of what it means to be human, and I'm, I just don't think that, that kind of change is a productive change or one that enriches the human
1: experience. I degree. Degre. Um, well, so it's interesting that you just feel that because you don't think this would be a productive change, therefore we shouldn't do it. It seems to me that we today in society are faced with a choice whether to have, let's call it for sake of argument, a war on ageing or not to. It seems very clear to me that we have an absolutely clear moral obligation to give our descendants, future of, humanity of the future, the choice whether or not to use these technologies. If we go the other way and we say, oh dear, overpopulation or, you know, um, won't it be boring, let's not go there, then what we're doing is we're condemning an entire cohort of humanity to an unnecessarily painful and unnecessarily early death just because we thought that society might not like it very much.
5: Uh, I think there Franklin. was a narrative arc in 1900, too. You know, lifespan was 47. Uh, you had to have more kids because a couple of them were going to die during childbirth. If you didn't die yourself, you had to try to avoid the bad water that was all over the place. Uh, that's not that was a narrative arc. Um, I don't think we want to go back to that one.
0: And in ground, okay. Ian ground.
5: Can I
4: just come back on the conservatism point very quickly? Sure. The reason why people get more conservative as they get perhaps older is not because their their innovation neurons die off. How do you know? It's because they are they become particular people who've invested in certain values, who have narratives about themselves. It's a sense-making business, okay? And the new stuff doesn't fit. But look at the real issue. What do we really know? We know things like Moore's law about technology. It doubles, it gets better and better. Okay? So no doubt that will happen with the science. We also know about the Matthew effect. Inequalities tend to grow. Okay? Let's combine those two. Who do you think is going to be the people living the longest? Is it going to be you or you? It's going to be the billionaires living longer.
0: I'm John Donbent. Still to come, questions from the audience and the results of tonight's debate on Intelligence Squared U.S.
2: The next topic up for debate, are you for or against building your own website? Building a website can be tough. Even if you do know your way around coding, creating something that looks good and works well is a time-consuming affair. Lucky for us, Squarespace makes it easy to build beautiful websites without breaking a sweat. Squarespace provides simple, powerful, and beautiful websites that look professionally designed, regardless of skill level. No coding required. Not only does Squarespace provide you with intuitive and easy-to-use tools, Squarespace also has state-of-the-art technology powering your site to ensure security and stability. And you know you can trust Squarespace for your website needs when millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world trust in them too. When you really think twice about it, you can't beat the ease and simplicity. Squarespace gives you 24-7 online support and a beautiful website. So what are you waiting for? Start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. Make sure to use the offer code INTELLIGENCE to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for Intelligence Squared U.S. debates. Squarespace. Build it beautiful.
0: I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator, and we have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing for and against the motion lifespans are long enough. And if you can stand up, too. Thanks. My name is Paul MacIsaac. Um, if we believe in evolution, and if we believe that we, the human race, are not the end of the evolutionary process, and if technology has evolved with us, can we not think that both sides of the argument here are somewhat moot okay. because it, it will be another human race? I like the question. Let's take it to that, Ian That sounds Graham.
4: a bit like, you know, the dinosaur saying, don't worry about the meteorite. It's all right. We're going to be birds. You know... Uh, <laughs> Maybe. Who knows what's going to happen in millennia or or, or hundreds of thousands of years. But what's crazy is to start aiming at that now as if we could bring it about.
5: Uh, Who knows what's going to happen is exactly the point I want to make, too. And making speculations about how it's going to be bad to live longer, I I guess I have more faith in humanity than that. Uh, I I think that uh, I don't know what's going to happen with technology of that sort in the next 50 years. I just hope I'm healthy and alive in 50
0: years to figure out what happened down the front row here, Uh, third row, sorry, blue sweater.
5: I had a question for Mr. Uh, Wolpe uh, to go after the motion from a different perspective, which is religious liberty. I notice on your CV that you have a chair in Jewish bioethics, and in Genesis 6-3, God says, the natural lifespan of a human shall be 120 years. If you're Jewish or Christian, and the technologies become available to stay older, do you not have a religious argument of, I should be allowed these technologies because God says my natural lifespan is
0: 120 years. Well what if the technology lets you live to 150 years? Well that'd be then cheating. You're sinning, that'd you know. be cheating. Let's, no. take, let's take the question.
3: Okay. The human lifespan is about 120 years. That's how old the oldest humans live. If you look at species on this planet, there is virtually no species, and certainly no mammalian species, that lives any longer than that. Evolution has, for some reason, put a certain limit on how long individuals of species live. And my argument is we have to take that seriously. It's not the defining issue. But, but I think there's a wisdom to it that we completely ignore and say we should live as long as we want to our peril.
0: Brian Kennedy can, to
5: respond. Can I comment on programmed aging? First of all, there are a lot of species that live longer than we do. Whales live a lot longer than we do. Clams live a lot longer. Plants live 2,000 years. I mean, but, but this leave that aside for the moment. Uh, I think most of us feel like aging is what happens when natural selection stops. In other words, natural selection cares about fitness, which is basically reproduction. It means living long enough to have a healthy children and pass on your genes to the next generation. For almost all of our evolutionary history, uh, we weren't living long enough for it to matter whether we were healthy at 80 or 100 or not. And so natural selection breaks down. With age, and then the, the bad things that happen, the diseases that happen, hap- occur when natural selection is no longer working as well. That's the common view of aging in the field. And so, this idea that there's some program that defines how long we can live, I think, is there's very little evidence to support that. So
0: far, we have heard a lot of men talking tonight. <laughs> I count myself among them. It's time to hear from a woman right in the center, please.
5: Uh, Adrian Berg, uh, host of Generation Bold, The Fountain of Truth, which is a national radio show on aging. Is there an obligation, if we break through this concept of a finite age, that we have to make contribution? And if so, who's going to be the judge
1: of that?
0: Great. Let me bring it to Aubrey, since you, even though you've done
1: more dreaming, perhaps, about this. Than... I've certainly done more thinking than nearly everybody. All right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, this turned out to be a much easier question than people think. Because these therapies are going to pay for themselves so astronomically times over so quickly ageing is fantastically expensive at the moment in other words the absence of these therapies is expensive 90 percent or thereabouts of the medical budget of the western world including medical research but also medical budget is spent on the ill health of old age in one way or another not to mention of course all of the indirect costs the fact that people are not contributing wealth to society anymore because they're no longer able-bodied all those things add up to the fact that it would be economically suicidal for any country, even a tax-averse country like the USA, not to make sure that these therapies are available to everybody who is old enough to need them. It's going to be like basic education. It's going to be free. Paul Woppy. Uh, I,
3: uh, I see that as another sort of scientific, technological, utopian idea. We don't have anything that's free now, even things that have saved thousands of dollars. Um, the idea that there's a finite amount of human need in terms of health, and so if you solve one thing and free up money, it's, it's now free. Uh, we can't cure basic diseases here. We now have Zika and Ebola and MRSA. We have people in uh, Africa dying every day of cholera. I mean, this is a utopian fantasy that we're going to solve a problem, it'll free up all this money, and it'll be free for everybody. It has never Happened in human history, and the idea that it's going to happen now seems to me to be deeply unrealistic. I just had the
1: example of basic education.
0: Down front, sir, and then Michael, come down from the left hand side.
3: Uh, hi, uh, my name is Keith Kumito. I work for Lifespan.io, which actually crowdfunds research to help extend lifespan. So, uh, oh, are, you you wanna...
0: a, are you a plant?
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he's an animal. <laughs> Go ahead, please. But I kind of want to bring this to a little bit of the uh, philosophy, because it's sort of been glossed over, I think, in certain aspects. So if I understand it right, one of the cruxes against life extension is that in a true Wittgensteinian kind of way, life or the form of it needs to be defined by its negative space, by death. My question is, is it fair to say, to assume, that this state of existence is necessarily more ideal than one in which we have learned to take the reins of our own development unforced by external conditions that can rob you of the goods of life. You know, a ballerina okay, who's 40 uh, years old okay, and wants to uh, still dance. Let's, let's
0: take the, I thought you were going to be going down the... Uh, okay, I th- I that was good, I, good. You landed th- that well. Th- I I'll think take that I question understand the
4: question and thank, thank you for it. Um, it it's, you see, not so much was defined by the negative spaces, as you put it, by, by death, but that we... With even from within life, make choices that presuppose that uh, time is finite. You can't be a, a, a being that puts down roots if you're going to jump up in 50 years' time and go somewhere else.
1: Robert De Grey, would you like to respond? And, and if you can come in... <laughs> come into I'm the mic. I'm a practical, first-things-first kind of guy. I don't want to get sick. I don't want you to get sick, and I really don't think very much about philosophy, and I think I'm okay not doing that. <laughs>
4: But that's the problem, Aubrey, that people do think you're making philosophical claims about the wonderful possibilities that are there before the human race. It's the immortalists. The people who, if they can't get um, uh, the treatment you're, that you're trying to produce, are going to have themselves cryogenically frozen instead.
1: I think he's got you there on uh, the public reception issue, but take an answer. I I know that, Ian, as a a serious academic, understands that it's better to actually read Wittgenstein rather than read commentaries on Wittgenstein, if you want to know what Wittgenstein thought. And um, and I I, I would submit that it's the same for me.
3: (laughs) I'm Patricia Sabga. I'm an economics correspondent for Al Jazeera. And while I think you're right to give everybody access to this treatment, but history has shown, rightly so, that that's unlikely... But what about the fact that we live on a planet of
4: finite resources?
0: Okay, that's a great question. And let me let uh, Brian Kennedy answer that.
5: We talk about this overpopulation problem if people live longer, and I think it's just not true. First of all, the most developed, longest-living countries in the world have the lowest birth rates in the world. Japan has 1.3 children per couple. We're not going to be talking about too many Japanese. We're going to be talking about zero Japanese in a 1,000 years. Also, you have to realize that population growth is a geometric process. It's about how many babies you're having. Dying is a linear process, and it has a much smaller impact on on, on the global population population
0: we are going to conclude this round with what we call the volley round it's a very fast paced uh, take on one question in which the debaters go back and forth they each get 30 seconds when their time runs out they know because a bell rings the question uh, is this when your opponents say that the desire to extend life to make a serious effort at curing aging is essentially narcissistic what is your response to that 30 seconds starts now
1: I think calling it narcissistic is a kind of, what can I call it, not just a straw man. It's kind of a safety blanket. It's kind of a way to help one not think about something that is scary. Yes, the unknown is scary. Fear of the unknown is a natural emotion, but it shouldn't control our decisions. Our decisions should be controlled by objective analysis of the pros and cons of a Prospective action. And in this case, if the action is eliminating the suffering caused by ageing, I'm in favour of doing so.
4: I think there is underlying Ian this ground. whole kind of culture about anti-abolishing death, a kind of narcissism. It's a kind of consumerism as well that we become, as it were, consumers of our own lives. If we go look around a shopping mall and pick up a new character or a new capacity or new vices and virtues... This seems to be an essentially consumerist model of what it is to live a life, and we should fight it.
5: Thank you. Well, Ryan Kennedy. Um, I'm not the sensationalist. You know, I'm the small practical guy trying to keep you healthy longer. And I just have to say that if you look at the demographics right now, there's nothing narcissistic about keeping people healthy when there's going to be 25% of the population over the age of 65. We can improve quality of life and provide economic benefit at the same time in this half of this century, and we should be doing it.
0: Paul
3: Wolfe. My esteemed opponents have never once addressed the question of whether a desire to live longer is narcissistic. Every time they talk about it, they say the desire to be healthy isn't narcissistic. I agree with them. uh, Pursuing the end of aging in order to improve our health is not narcissistic. A desire to live to 200 is.
0: Thank you, Paul Wolfe. And that concludes our volley round, and that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is... Lifespans are long enough. Now we move on to round three. Round three are closing statements by each debater in turn. They will be uninterrupted. They will be two minutes each. Speaking first, in support of the motion in the closing round, Ian Ground, a philosopher and teaching fellow in fine art at Newcastle University.
1: I want
4: to bring you back to the idea of the indefinite life. I was at a philosophy conference once, uh, and someone asked the question, well, what do people of faith, what age do they think we are in heaven? And someone said, oh, you know, you're in your prime, 38, 40, something like that. And someone said, yeah, but what age do they think you are in hell? Someone went, oh. I know, 14 or 15. That was terrible. <laughs> Your body's a world of weird. You hate everything. You have no idea who you are. You're always right, but nobody believes you. <laughs> and this made me think, actually, that if you want a kind of picture of of the psychological life of someone leading the serious matter here, the life indefinite. Okay, think of the teenager. At least of some of them. Their life has no shape. Okay, their identities are fluid and painful. They have no conception of shared finite resources. And yes, they really do think they will live forever. That seems to me a kind of clue to thinking what it would be like to live this kind of indefinite life. now my story has an ending. After discussion at the conference, uh, there came a lone voice from the back. And someone said, no, 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 you're all wrong. In hell, you're in your prime. Everybody else is fourteen. To vote for this motion is not to vote against health, okay? it's not to express a death wish, it's not about health spans, it's the vision that's offered of indefinite life. Vote to express the wisdom that there's more to life than just more of it. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ian Graham. And the motion is lifespans are long enough. And here making his closing statement against the motion, Aubrey de Gray, Chief Science Officer of SENS Research Foundation.
1: So we've had a lot of discussion of the possible problems that might be created as a result of solving the problem that we all four of us agree we have today, the problem of ill health in old age. These problems might arise as a result of this side effect that people would live longer. Some people think that we might live a great deal longer as a result of technologies that could be developed in the near future. Some people think that our progress is going to be rather more modest. It remains to be seen. But the fact is that this debate is about the desirability of extending life, not about the feasibility and how we're going to do it. Therefore, I think that the role that Brian and I have tonight overwhelmingly is to explain to all of you... What is actually biologically reasonable in terms of the linkage between health span and lifespan, which I think we've done. The question has to be asked then yes, there is certainly much more to life than more life. The question is, is it an either or? And I would put it to you that the implicit premise of, of the other side is that, in fact, there is an either-or, that life will actually be in some profound senses a lot worse if it's a lot longer. I think that that is an extremely uncertain proposition, which has by no means been demonstrated by the other side. So I would invite you to vote against the motion.
0: Thank you, Albert de Grey. And again, that motion is life spans are long enough. Making his closing statement in support of the motion, Paul Wolpe, director of the Center for Ethics at Emory University.
3: In his last great speech, before he was assassinated, Martin Luther King said, Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. When life is forever, what's worth dying for? Do I want to live forever? Sure. Some part of me in that sort of reptilian, narcissistic, I'm so important center of the world, yes, I have that survival instinct that all organisms on this planet have. But I think we're greater than that as human beings, greater than pursuing life for its own state. Life's beauty and preciousness is partly due to its transience and the bittersweet knowledge that we will all die and that through that transition, other lives will live and flourish. And I think the most noble part of who we are as human beings is exactly that, is our willingness to give our lives our willingness to discount the value of ourselves for the benefit of others and that's why i find so much of this conversation deeply problematic to me as an ethicist what is the real value we're pursuing here if we're pursuing health in the in the service of a well-lived life great if we're pursuing long life itself it seems to me to be a deeply misguided value
0: thank you paul walper the motion again. Lifespans are long enough. And here making his closing statement against the motion, Brian Kennedy, CEO and president of the Buck Institute for Research on Aging.
5: Um, I'd just like to comment about one thing you just said. You said if life was infinite, what would be worth dying for? I think that we need to look carefully at what people are choosing to die for right now. And maybe we'd be a much better off planet if it was a little bit harder to convince people to die for causes like ridiculous wars that are going on all over the place. Having said that, I'm gonna be a narcissist and talk about myself and my grandparents. Uh, I do understand aging because I was an only child and I grew up a family where the women lived forever. One grandmother lived to 99, another grandmother lived to 101. And they were inspirations to me. Uh, my grandmother, Lita, who died recently at 101, she uh, was very active. She quit driving at 91. Last time she flew out to visit me across country with no assistance was at 95. She bowled a 238 game at 92. <laughs> she was a centenarian, and she was extremely healthy. The last six months of her life, she was still living alone, and then she got sick. Her heart valves gave out, macular degeneration. She went downhill and died rapidly within six months. And she's not the only centenarian that's like this. If you look at the centenarian population, they're remarkably healthy. They have one third the healthcare cost rough that the rest of the population does because they don't get these chronic diseases of aging. They stay remarkably cognizant and then they decline rapidly. That, I don't want to die necessarily, but that's the life I want to live. And actually, you know, maybe I am avoiding the question, but we asked the question, do people want to live longer? And I think this health span approach is going to make you live longer, but it's going to do it the right way. It's going to do it by keeping you healthy. So I think this is a golden opportunity. I actually think there's a huge social benefit that comes from having healthy, functional, active older people in the population, and I look forward to seeing what that's going to be.
0: Thank you, Brian Kennedy. And that concludes closing statements and round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is lifespans are long enough. The results are in now. Our audience here in New York has voted twice on the motion, uh, once before hearing the debates and once again afterwards, and it goes like this. Before the debate, 32% agreed with the motion lifespans are long enough. 36% were against and 32% were undecided those are the first results let's look at the second result the team arguing for the motion their first vote 32% their second vote was 40% they pulled up 8 percentage points so that is the number to beat let's look now at the team against the motion their first vote was 36% their second vote was 49% they picked up 13 percentage points <clears throat> That makes the team arguing against the motion. Lifespans are long enough our winner. Our congratulations to them. Thank you from me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosenkrantz is chairman. Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the engineer. Clea Chang is chief marketing and digital officer. Chris Kamakawa is Director of Research, and I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit iq2us.org. This debate was generously funded by Thomas Campbell Jackson as a first step in a series planned to explore health care. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Connor Davis Family Foundation, David A. Coulter, Van Greenfield, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, and Daniel H. Stern. From Intelligence Squared U.S., thank you.